Hello and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Peter Adamson and Janardan Ganari, brought to you by the King's College Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about the Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna with Jan Vesterhof, who is Associate Professor in Religious Ethics at the University of Oxford and a Fellow and Tutor in Theology and Religion at Lady Margaret Hall at the University of Oxford. Hi, Jan. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Peter. We've already done several episodes on Nagarjuna, but just in case the listener needs a reminder or missed those episodes, can you just give us a reminder of who he was, when he lived? Mm-hmm. Sure. Nagarjuna probably lived during the 2nd to 3rd century CE, even though there are various traditional biographies that attribute to him much longer lifespans of several hundred years, but that seems to be a historically plausible dating. He probably was active somewhere in southern India, even though we're not entirely sure where. He was most likely a Buddhist monk, but that's about as far as the clearly supportable data go. He, his most famous work, the fundamental stanzas on the middle way, the Mula Madhyamaka Karika, which is a work of 450 verses, and um, most, I think, of the material we are going to talk about today is uh, drawn from that work. The uh, fundamental wisdom of the middle way is a philosophical text that is closely aligned with the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, or the Pranya Paramita texts, to the extent that it provides a systematic way of spelling out certain statements made in these sutras. Interestingly, the texts in Nagarjuna are connected, at least in the mythological uh, accounts of his life, because the, the traditional story of the Perfection of Wisdom texts is that they were taught by the historical Buddha, then entrusted to uh, a group of underground, underwater serpent spirit called Nagas, who looked after them until the time was right for them to come into uh, the public again. Rather untraditional way of transmitting philosophical right, learning. Right, right. And Nagarjuna, best the, the, the Nagas in his name, is the one who brought these texts back from the Nagas, back to the human world, and um, then uh, uh, explicated them in his, in his philosophy. And in fact, there is an interesting link between the, the text we're talking about, the, the fundamental wisdom of the middle way, and the um, perfection of wisdom sutras, insofar as the, the, the praise of the Buddha at the very beginning of the text is a very close paraphrase of a passage in the perfection of wisdom sutra in 25,000 lines. So there's a direct link here between these kinds of texts and Nagarjuna's main work. And does that mean that we should think about him as a, really as a commentator? so that everything that he says it can be traced back to a source text on which he's reflecting? Or is it more like his philosophical ideas have a fairly loose relationship with the texts on which he's commenting, so to speak? Right. Well, the, the Karikas are not a commentary, so they don't refer to, to an earlier root text as explicit commentaries do. Um, what they, um, in fact, they only refer to one sutra by name in the whole text. So it's not it's not a commentary work of that nature. However, the, I think the best way of conceiving it is as a philosophical explication of specific claims made in the uh, Perfection of Wisdom sutras. And these sutras are different from philosophical texts as we 
are usually familiar with because they make a lot of philosophical claims, but they don't necessarily supply the arguments. So you can interpret Nagarjuna as supplying the arguments for the claims, particular claims about emptiness, that the Pranayaparamita Sutras make. Right. So you and actually, could we even think of him as making more explicit what we might think of as the underlying philosophy of the earlier sutras? Yes, insofar as you would want to say that he spells out or brings up the arguments that you would need in order to support these claims. I, I don't think we should think of Nagarjuna as a philosopher who just goes and does his own thing, right? What he wants to do is explicate the Buddha's message. And he says that very clearly in the text at the, the very beginning, and explicate it in the way in which it is stated in the Pranayaparamita Sutras. So to that extent, you can say it's a commentary on that. But it's a commentary only insofar as it explicates something that is present in a lot of other texts. Moving on then to some of his actual philosophical positions, I guess the most prominent one is probably this doctrine of emptiness. Mm -hmm. And I think it's maybe easier to think about emptiness in terms of what he's rejecting. And what he's rejecting goes under the name svavava, mm -hmm. which means something like stable reality, or it means something like that, but maybe you can tell us what it really means. Right. <laughs> okay, well, so etymologically, the, the word is a compound of um, two parts, sva and bhava. Sva means own, and bhava means existence or being. So if you translate it very literally, it means own being which, of course, doesn't tell you a lot yet. Um, the way this term has generally been translated in the Western literature is by some term from the set substance, essence, intrinsic nature. None of those gets the whole complexities of the term, but they all get fairly close in various, various respects. The terms for Bhava is fairly complex because it incorporates a, diff a multiplicity of different meanings. And I think we can differentiate at least three different dimensions of meaning. One is a clearly ontological one. To that extent, Svabhava refers to some kind of ground of being. So that gets closest perhaps to the Western notion of substance. And in the in the Indian commentary literature you you find that kind of grounding spelled out in a variety of different ways in terms of Mariological grounding, so the most fundamental parts, the atoms, in terms of causal grounding, in terms of a first cause, and in, for, in terms of grounding of our conceptualization of reality to so some non-conceptual stuff our concepts are conceptions about. So if Svabhava is rejected, all of this is rejected. So that's the ontological dimension as the first dimension. Secondly, it also has a sem semantic dimension when... when uh, these philosophers talk about the svabhava in linguistic terms, it generally refers to a specific conception of language where there is a ready-made and structured word out there, and there is a language here, and the two are related in some way, perhaps by structural similarity. Yeah, so that would be a, a svabhava view of language. Svabhava would be the referent of the linguistic term, is that right? Well, the, svab the, the fact that language works with svabhava would be that it, it structurally matches onto an objectively structured reality. So, that, that, so how the semantic works would be the, the, the stuff that exists with Svabhava. For example, if you 
analyze sentences into agents and their actions and the objects the way that the, the grammarians, yeah. that's what grammarians yeah. do, yeah. then the thought would be, well, if language is structured like that, then reality must be structured like that too. Precisely. You have a, a theory in, in uh, Sanskrit grammar, so-called Karaka theory, which gives you an idea of the different components or agents within the sentence. And then if you say, okay, there's, there's a one-to-one match between the grammatical structure and the ontological structure of the fact it describes. So that would be a, a kind of view that uh, reads language or semantics as working with Svabhava, right? Okay, so that's the second. The third component, and in, in a way the most important component, is w- w- what I someti- sometimes call the cognitive component of Svabhava. And that means that Svabhava is a kind of cognitive default that we project onto the world automatically when we perceive anything. And the the aim of the Buddhist practice that Nagarjuna's philosophy is supposed to support is to try to train us out of that and to remove this kind of intuitive and default superimposition of seeing the world in terms of Svabhava. Nagarjuna then is one of the philosophers who thinks of philosophy as a kind of therapy. That would be one dimension of that yeah, okay. of that point, yes. Now, that sounds like it could be a very skeptical position, because if Nagarjuna comes and says, well, everything is empty, and by empty I mean nothing has essence or substance or own being mm-hmm. uh, in a, an ontological sense, and also uh, language doesn't mirror reality, mm-hmm. and also our thought doesn't necessarily latch on to reality, mm-hmm then all of that sounds extremely skeptical. Mm -hmm. But then, on the other hand, it seems like a lot of the debates, because of the opponents he's arguing against, focus on some rather ambitious metaphysical postulations anyway, Mm -hmm. like the self, the unsolving, the unchanging self Mm -hmm. that you get um, held up in the classical uh, Vedic tradition. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I'm not sure about with Nagarjuna is whether he's telling me to abandon common sense or whether he's just telling me that I shouldn't be a Hindu philosopher. Mm-hmm. So how skeptical do you read him as being? Right. Okay, a couple of points. First, I think it's it's a d- little bit difficult to use the term skepticism here because the claims you're making are not exclusively claims about how we know the world and our inability to know it. Right? So this is, he's, he, he's or even though he has a lot to say about epistemology, the enterprise is at least as ontological as it is epistemological. Right? That's, that's the, the, the one point. Second point, because how does Nagarjuna or Madhyamaka want you to give up common sense? Well, that's a very good question. I think we might come back to that when we talk a little bit about the later ramifications of this. But I think the immediately important point is that what Madhyamaka is trying to do is, or at least how it, how it interprets itself, is by taking further the um, development of the Buddha's idea of selflessness, insofar as it doesn't just apply to the selflessness of persons, but to the selflessness of phenomena, to the selflessness of all dharmas, which are the, the fundamental phenomena that the early, early Buddhist philosophy has identified. So this is not just a rejection of the Hindu concept of Atman. That is, that's one dimension of uh, the theory of emptiness. But it is at the same time also a rejection of the entire Abhidharma metaphysics, which can be plausibly interpreted as a kind of trope theory where you've got a fundamental level of reality that um, consists of these momentary tropes which then conglomerate into 
the, the medium-sized dry goods we see in the world around us. And a trope is just a particular instance of a universal, right. usually like this red or this Yeah, yeah a particularized property, property, yes. I guess then there would be a connection to Buddhist ethical teaching or uh, liberation because if I come to accept not only that I have no enduring self, but that chocolate cake has no enduring reality, then it may help me to lose my attachment to eating chocolate cake. Is that the idea? That is uh, one way of reading it. Um, of course, the, the connection between Madhyamaka ontology and Madhyamaka ethics is fairly complicated. Uh, well, we'll talk probably a little bit more about the Madhyamaka conception of conventional reality, but if you not just reject an ultimately existent Atman, but also conventionally real Atman, of course you've got the, the obvious questions with karmic causality and karmic responsibility and who gets reborn and so on, and all of those questions are very much tied up with ethics. So that, that is an important issue that, that needs to be sorted out by Madhyamaka thinkers. But certainly it would be fair to say that at some level this is an attempt to combat attachment. Right, yes. Okay. Um, now, that's the negative side of Nagarjuna's mm -hmm. ontology, the critique of not just Atman, but um, the critique of Svabhava uh, in general, the insistence of a doctrine of emptiness. Is there also a positive ontology that comes along with that? Can he offer us any s sort of uh, positive description of the world? Or is he really just there when other positively-minded philosophers come along to say, no, 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 I won't let you say that. Right. There is some... Within the theory of emptiness, uh, uh, you'll find the, the rather intriguing claim that the theory of emptiness also applies to itself. So emptiness is itself empty. So to that extent, um, the Madhyamaka doesn't think it's possible to give any objective account of what the world is ultimately like. Yeah? So you can't just turn around and say, okay, a materialist might want to say that ultimately everything is material, the Madhyamaka wants, say, wants to say in the same way ultimately everything is empty. That's not what they want to say. Um, the, the way the um, Madhyamaka philosophizing works, and uh, you can see that strategy at work in the Nagarjuna's uh, uh, Karikas, is by um, a kind of piecemeal approach looking at specific concepts that are particularly prone to being conceptualized in terms of Svabhava and trying to take those apart. Um, of course, that is that approach is pretty much open-ended because, you know, you don't know what kind of other uh, Svabhava-like notion your opponent is going to come up with. And that is also a reason why there is nothing like a master argument for Madhyamaka, so an argument where you just, you know, that, that solves the matter once and for all, and for all comers. Because you piecemeal shoot down each positive ontological claim made by the opponent. Yes, that's that's correct. However, I think it is it is worthwhile to note that this the, the Madhyamaka project is is uh, very interesting and I think unique in, in, in the respect that it applies the, um, the dissolving analysis of uh, it applies to everything with Svabhava to its own theory. So um, you, you end up with a theory that says that there is no ultimately true theory or no ultimately true account of the world. And to that extent we might wonder, okay, so is that still an ontological theory or philosophical theory, given that we often think that these theories are precisely meant to do that, to tell us what the world is ultimately like. Um, yeah, that, so that is that is an, a, a peculiar feature of Madhyamaka thinking. And he's really forced into that because there's pressure from potential or real opponents of Nagarjuna who can say, well, you're uh, refuting yourself because you say that everything is empty, but on the other hand, your claim that everything is empty 
can't be empty because otherwise it couldn't be true. And then he responds to that by saying, no, my claim that everything is empty is also empty. Yes, he's, that, that is a dilemma that is, that is um, proposed by the opponent of the Madhyamaka. And um, so the, the, the way Nagarjuna responds to that is by saying, look, of course the, the theory of emptiness is empty too, but that doesn't mean that it can't fulfill any philosophical purpose, for example, in refuting other theories. In the same way as the emptiness of, say, a chariot doesn't mean that it can't carry wood, in the same way an empty philosophical theory can still do lots of things, even though it's not an ultimate account of reality. And that takes us back to the idea that it's a kind of therapeutic philosophy. Yes, that is one. That, that would be one way of reading this. And what happens then, as you mentioned before, that um, they have to say something about conventional reality? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is the idea that uh, conventional reality is more or less left standing then, and we just are being taught to abandon the idea that there's a svabhava behind conventional reality, mm-hmm. or does conventional reality also get put into question? Right. Well, the, the, what the precise status of conventional reality within Madhyamaka is becomes a huge issue in the commentary tradition after Nagarjuna. And two main possibilities explored there by various thinkers is that the, on, on the one hand we have the idea that conventional reality is false because it has all these superimpositions of Sabhava and we can interact with that in our everyday life because it has various practical purposes but it can't uh, it obviously can't can't uh, tell us anything about what the world is really like on the other hand you get the approach that that says that well even though there is no ultimately true theory that doesn't mean that every conventionally true theory is as bad as every other right so there is a there's a stratification of conventional theories in terms of philosophical quality <laughs> even though there is none that is ultimately true so there is a there is a, a um, you can rate them in terms of better or worse, even though there's no best. And isn't there a threat there then that Brahmanic opponents of the Buddhists could come in and say, well, fine, if you're willing to concede that our theory is about Atman and, and the gods and so on, mm. is the cl- best conventional reality, mm. then we'd be willing to settle for that. Well, I, d- I don't think a Brahminical opponent would be happy with that, because that means that you know precisely Brahman and so on is not a theory that is ultimately true. It's just something that's conven- It's a convenient fiction to believe, right? Okay. But uh, you basically pull up, pull, pull the metaphysical rug from under that. And so they wouldn't. Government. They wouldn't be willing to settle for mere pragmatic utility no. or something. No, certainly not. Okay. No. So there's no way of bringing the two schools together in this fashion. No, certainly not in that way. No. Right, okay. No. <laughs> no. Um, let's focus on one particular. Thing that it seems like Buddhists should want to say that sounds very positively ontological, mm. which is that one and the same person in some sense is reincarnated because we're told that uh, if we don't achieve liberation, we will be reincarnated. Sometimes we're told that certain actions will result in certain fruits in the next life, if not in this one. And it has it's always been a problem in Buddhism that if you really take the doctrine of no self seriously, mm-hmm. it's hard to see how I or anyone could be reincarnated. Mm-hmm. Um, how can Nagarjuna account for this possibility of reincarnation, and maybe more generally, how can he account for the possibility of personal identity over time so that 
you and I are the same people in some sense as the people who started mm -hmm. having this conversation 15 mm -hmm. minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Well, to a certain extent, of course, this is a problem that has been with Buddhist philosophy since the very beginning, because the, the, the theory of no-self goes back all the way to the historical Buddha. So, um, and the way this is usually tackled in, in Abhidharma accounts is by treating the person as a causal complex of momentary phenomena, both physical phenomena and mental phenomena, that constitute this kind of stream, and the stream is unified by one moment causing the next moment. Right? And this is the for the Abhidhammas, not for the Madhyamakas, this is for the, the underlying reality on which the notion of a person is superimposed. Yeah? And so that is then used to do all the work for of the notions that you just mentioned, explain memory, explain karmic responsibility, explain what is reborn. And so you've got a similar, like, you know, if you, if you, if you light one candle by another candle, is it the same flame or not? Well, it's impossible to say, but what you can say is that there's causal chain going from the first candle to the, the other candle. And so that is a way in which you can differentiate persons between each other. Yeah? So that is, a, that is an issue that was already addressed in the early Abhidhamma treatises. But of course now in the Madhyamaka concept, you have to say that all of this underlying ontological theory, this, the, the causal theory of the, of the moments and so on, all of that is only conventionally real, right? Because they don't allow anything to, that is ultimately, ultimately real. So is that still sufficient to, to phrase the, all, the, all these Buddhist notions like karmic responsibility and rebirth and, and so on? Well, what Nagarjuna and the Madhyamika also say is that you, you shouldn't think that saying that something is conventional either says, either means we're making it all up, or um, we can just you know, decide what conventional reality is going to be like. And a, a metaphor that, that comes up frequently in Madhyamaka texts and also in, in Nagarjuna is the metaphor of the, of the world being either like a magical illusion or like a dream. So if you take the dream example, even though the, the actors in the dream are not real, you can't just, first of all, decide what you want to dream about, and once you're in the dream, you can't just manipulate reality in any way you want. It's rather the case that once you are once you are within that particular illusion, it has certain there are certain ways in which it works, and it follows certain laws. And in the in the uh, uh, Buddhist context, we'd say those laws in our waking world are the karmic laws that, that influence us in, in certain directions. But that doesn't mean that any of that is ultimately real. No? That yeah. seems to go a lot better with the second version of the Madhyamaka understanding of conventional reality that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. because it seems to imply that. Um, there's a better way and a worse way of understanding mm -hmm. conventional reality? Mm. Or do you mean something more like the obvious way that things present themselves? So if, I, if there's a chair in front of me, then I don't have the option of whether or not I believe that there's a chair in front of me. Mm. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the main issue in dis the discussion of different forms of conventional reality is if you want to have uh, within the Madhyamika context, anything like a scientific picture of the world with kind of reductive relation between different theories, right? Uh, if you, uh, you can either say, okay, the world is just the way it appears, that's conventional reality, that's it, right? Or you might want to say, well, the theory of the world as it's presented to us in physics is in certain ways more useful than the way it appears to us in the manifest image, 
depending on how you see conventional reality in this in the Madhyamaka context, you you are able or you are not able to make that distinction. I see. So the mm-hmm. second theory would be one which sees levels of conventional reality, yeah. Yeah. one of which might be better than the other, whereas yeah. the first version just says, well, conventional reality is the way it seems, right. and it's empty. Right. Okay, so perhaps we should just put some labels actually on these theories, <laughs> just to, to not, not to confuse people. So the, the, the first uh, interpretative position is usually... Uh, connected uh, with with a commentator called Chandrakirti, and the second with a uh, commentator called Bhaviveka, and those two formed two different streams of reading the Madhyamaka enterprise, and um, they they uh, developed a, a very intricate discussion amongst each other, both in later India and then later also in, in, in Tibet. Do you have any particular view on who has the better of that interpretive dispute? I mean, what Nagarjuna himself was trying to say? Or are you going to remain neutral? Mm, it's, uh, well, I, I'm going to be boring and say I can see both sides of the debate. Uh, <laughs> the, the, you have to see the, the, the Chandrakirti's position, the Prasangika Madhyamika position, is usually the one that gets most of the airtime, primarily because that is the one that became most dominant in Tibet. And given that that is the, the kind of the, the, the living tradition of Madhyamika that we still see as continuing, very often text or, or the entire history of Madhyamika is, is read backwards with that view in mind. Um, whereas Bhaviveka and his levels approach has, out, has lost out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's worthwhile to, to actually you know, bring that back into the focus a little bit more and, and, uh, and understand what the, the philosophical advantages of this theory are even though the majority of Madhyamaka thinkers after uh, Bhaviveka gave prominence to Chandrakirti's approach. I see. Uh, we've been talking so far about his ontology and mm-hmm. his critique of other rival ontologies, but something else that's very striking about Nagarjuna is his attention to philosophical methodology. Mm-hmm. We already mentioned his anticipating the objection that the emptiness thesis is itself empty, and mm-hmm. he finds a way around that. Sure. Um, but there's another thing for which he's quite well known, which is his use of the tetralemma. Mm-hmm. He's not the only Buddhist mm-hmm. author who uses this, mm-hmm. but he's a master of the tetralemma. Mm-hmm. So can you remind the listener what the tetralemma is, and then talk about some of the ways that Nagarjuna uses it? And maybe, in particular, what you think the underlying logic of the tetralemma is, because that's quite a controversial question. Right. Well, the first thing to note is that the, the tetralemma, just in, in Buddhist philosophical literature, is a, is a fairly complex phenomenon. First of all, not entirely clear what its form is in all cases, and also, it's also not in, entirely clear what all the Buddhist authors do with it. So, um, there, are, there are tetralemmas that come only with two alternatives. There are those actually with four, hence of course the tetralemma. Um, then generally the four alternatives are rejected, but we also find a couple of cases where actually all four alternatives are affirmed. So I just want to talk about the, the dominant form, which is the four alternatives, and the, the dominant way of handling it, namely rejecting all the four alternatives, and the dominant way of interpreting that. Okay, so you've got four alternatives within this form of the tetralemma. You've got A, not A, A and not A, and neither A nor not A. And in this form, they're all rejected. So what, what is the A going to be? Well, in, certainly in, in Nagarjuna's text, the A uh, can be things like the uh, existence of nirvana, the existence of persons, um, the assertion of emptiness, or the existence of the Buddha after death. All of those, for example. One way of interpreting the, what, what, is, what is going on here is that all of the four positions of the tetralemma 
are regarded as making an objectionable presupposition, and all of those four are rejected because the, the presupposition itself is supposed to be rejected. I'll give you a simple example, uh, which actually goes back to the early Buddhist texts. If, if you ask somebody, okay, you've got, a, you've got a fire and you blow it out, and somebody asks you, where did it go? North, south, east, or west? <laughs> You're going to deny it all, because there is, uh, the, 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 the questioner makes the faulty assumption that the fire goes to a specific place once it's gone out, right? Okay, so that's a way in which you want to reject all the alternative because you want to reject a specific presupposition they make. Um, however, in specific context, the issue is a little bit more complex. So let me just read you one version of the Tetralemma we find actually in chapter 22 of the Karikas, where Nagarjuna says, empty should not be asserted, non-empty should not be asserted, both or neither should not be asserted, since these are only said for the purpose of designation. Okay, so we've got four alternatives here. So empty should not be asserted. Why is that? Well, because Empty sh emptiness should not be asserted as an ultimately true theory because no, uh, no theory is ultimately true, not even a theory of emptiness. Um, no, nor should we th say, either at the conventional level or at the ultimate level, that all things fail to be empty and thereby have svabhava, because that's precisely what the Madhyamaka wants to, wants to point out. Nor should we say, either at the conventional level or the, or the ultimate level, that some, but not other objects, are empty. So some have svabhava, some don't. That's also not what the Madhyamaka wants to say. And nor should we want to say that there are some objects that both have Svabhava and lack it. Right? Because that actually seems to violate the law of non-contradiction. Correct. Actually. Correct. Actually, wouldn't the fourth item in the Tetralemma just always violate the law of non-contradiction? So it seems like you can get that one for free. Ah, well, that is, that, that is yet another can of worms. I think this is a, is a good objection. The way this is usually handled, and this is actually the, the, the most famous way of handling it, goes back to the commentator Bavi Veka that we've already mentioned, is by distinguishing two different forms of negation that are used within the context of the tetralemma. There is um, uh, one form of negation that preserves the certain presuppositions made in the negated propositions and others that don't. And once you see how they, those interact, you realize that um, you can't dispose of the fourth possibility quite so quickly. I see. It, it's, it seems that there's another logical problem that arises here, mm -hmm. which is that if he refuses to accept both of two propositions which are contraries, for mm -hmm. example, empty, everything is empty, not everything is empty, mm -hmm. then it looks like he's violating another logical rule, which is mm -hmm. the law of the excluded middle or mm -hmm. principle of bivalence or mm -hmm. something. So, But just uh, not to get too technical, the idea is, well, if I say something meaningful, it should be either true or false. Mm -hmm. And if someone comes along and says to me, well, it's neither true nor false, mm -hmm. then it looks like they're violating the laws of logic. Mm -hmm. So how can he get around that? Mm -hmm. Well, this is, uh, I think, best interpreted in terms of the presupposition failure I mentioned earlier on. So, um, uh, so if you ask me, say, is the number three yellow or not? Where, but it's obviously not yellow, but if you buy not yellow, you mean, well, it has some other color, it's green or blue or red, then I would want to negate that as, too, uh, as well, right? Because it doesn't have any color at all because it's an abstract object, right? So to that extent, you can, you can, uh, you can see that you want to negate both alternatives of a contradictory pair um, if you assume that the opponent that is setting up the alter that these two alternatives is making a presupposition behind each alternative that you reject. And I suppose that given his global rejection of Svavava, 
it would actually be the case that there are bad presuppositions behind an awful lot of potential propositions we could consider, or maybe even all propositions. Yes, yes, that's right. So that you could apply the tetralemma all over the place. Yes. Which is pretty Mm -hmm. much what he does. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's one thing that I think is interesting about Nagarjuna is that he does seem to be a very uh, reactive philosopher in the sense that he's spending a lot of his time criticizing rival views. And we might have an expectation that philosophers like that don't generate their own living traditions. But in that, in this case, that's very much not true. Nagarjuna is one of the most influential Indian thinkers. And you've already mentioned um, that there are two commentators who disagreed about um, the right way to understand him. Can you say a little bit more, just in conclusion, about how Nagarjuna's thought was received in India and also in Tibet? Mm-hmm. As we mentioned before, the the the, the most um, important split in the in the understanding of Madhyamaka and of Nagarjuna's thought in India uh, concerns the status of conventional reality, and in particular the question of whether some conventions can be better than others, even though there is no ultimately true, ultimately real reality. And um, Bhavi Veka said yes, some conventions can be better than others. Chandrakirti says no, the conventional reality is the way it appears to us. It is deceptive, and that's where we leave the matter. So th- this is this is certainly the um, the most in- important interpretative divergence we find in the Indian context. Then, once the Buddhism and with it the Madhyamaka schools becomes translated into Tibet, the um, tradition picks up from there, and in the end, uh, Madhyamaka and um, in particular the Madhyamaka read according to Chandrakirti, also known as Prasangika, Madhyamaka then becomes the dominant philosophical school within Tibetan Buddhism and in fact the the, the official party line. And all other Buddhist schools, like Yogacara and Abhidhamika, are relegated as propedeutics to that. So so they're all all accepted, but they are all steps towards the final correct view. And I think one important diversion we find within the Tibetan discussion of Madhyamaka is the issue we, we mentioned at, at the very beginning, namely the question whether Madhyamika asks us to reject the common sense view of the world. And that, that is connected closely with the question with what the Madhyamika think the object of negation is. So if you say, think everything is empty, nothing has Svabhava, what precisely are you, are you rejecting? And within the Tibetan scholastic tradition, we sometimes find the idea that there is something called the falsely existent object, that is what the Madhyamikas reject, but then there's also a conventionally object that is left untouched by the Madhyamika analyses. Now, that issue becomes important because you, you can see really two sides of a coin here. On the one hand, this kind of procedure is, has a certain danger of turning the object of negation of Svabhava into a kind of scholastic epiphenomenon. Because why, why should anybody care if the false nature is, is rejected as long as you have some still, you know, some conventionally existent true nature still flying around? It seems like a lot of work to tell us that the things that are true are the things we pretty much thought were true in the first place. Precisely. So <laughs> if, if Madhyamaka analysis does not apply to, you know, shoes and ships and ceiling walks, but to kind of philosophical straw men, then it's hard to see what all the fuss is about. Yeah? So and the, the, the key, dis, the, the key dis debate is here that on the one hand, the defenders of this approach say, look, I mean, if you regard Madhyamaka as negating common sense or the way things appear to us, 
then you end up with a kind of nihilistic theory which says nothing exists. Right? On the other hand, the, the opponents of that view claim that, well, it would be very surprising if any philosophical theory would make the world disappear. Right? <laughs> so it's not that if you believe in these arguments, something, nothing appears to you anymore. Rather, what's happening is that you, have, you, you are forced into this position of this discrepancy between the theory saying it's all an illusion, it's not there, and the appearance of it as real. And so this tradition claims that this kind of tension, this kind of dis discrepancy, is what can generate direct experiential awareness of what the Madhyamakas are trying to show. Okay, well, uh, we're going to continue to look at uh, the development of the Indian tradition as the podcast goes forward. Uh, for now, I'd like to thank Jan Vestohoff very much for coming on to talk about Nagarjuna. Oh, thank you, Peter. Um, one of my favorite Indian philosophy scholars talking about one of my favorite Indian philosophers, so I was very pleased to do this interview. Um, but uh, that's not the end of the series, of course, so please join me uh, next time when I will be continuing to look at Indian philosophy together with the help of Janardhan Canary here on The History of Philosophy in India.